Welcome back to Agile Coffee. This is episode 14. My name is Vic Bonacci, and yes, people have asked, Bonacci, is that related to Fee Bonacci? And I have to say yes, Fee means son of Bonacci, and yes, I am a son of a Bonacci. Uh, v Bonacci, I can be reached on Twitter at Agile Coffee, at Agile Coffee on Twitter. My friend John Jorgensen is here today. He could be reached at Water Scrumbon. Good morning, John. Good morning. Reporting for duty, sir. Thank you very much. Good to have you again. Thank you. We've got Dale Ellis with us again today. Good morning, Dale. Hello. You can be reached, that's Dale, can be reached at the Digital Dale on Twitter. I love that handle. And Larry Lawhead is back. Good morning, Larry. Good to be here. Larry can be reached on email at lawhead5 at hotmail.com. So here we are again. We've got the um, the rules already explained. Uh, by now, listeners know the, the rundown of the rules. We've got a number of cards on the table that we've gone ahead and prioritized. Our first card up says, anyone going to or have gone to Agile conferences? Dale, is that yours? You want to start us off? Yeah, it is. I mean, we've got a couple of conferences coming up very soon. I wanted to know if anyone planned on going to those upcoming ones or if they'd been to any in the past that they thought were particularly useful. Well, I'll chime in. The ones that I've got planned for the next couple of months are I'm going to be attending and helping organize the SoCal Agile 2014 next Thursday and Friday. And then in late September, I'm going to be flying to Indianapolis where there is an Agile coaching camp. It's three days of three days of events. Two of the days are an open space event among coaches in Agile. And then the first day is an Agile games gathering, so to speak. And it's a, like a whopping $120 for like those three days. Mm-hmm. So, and oh, and by the way, it turns out like they, they sold, they didn't sell out. They, they had so many people um, buy in that they had to relocate. So they're changing the venue to a larger place that can hold them. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing we're talking north of 50 or 60 people. So mm-hmm. maybe we're expanding to like 100 or plus. I, I don't really know. I'm so envious of that. I, I've got other commitments. I can't make it to Indianapolis. But then in October, I think it's the 10th or so, mm-hmm. uh, there's a two-day Agile Open in Northern California. So that's up in the San Francisco area. October, I want to say, 10th and 11th, um, NorCal's Agile Open, and and you mentioned the SoCal Agile Open here coming up in the next few days. The cool part about the um, Agile Coaching Conference Mm -hmm. is it's like a Friday, Saturday, and a Sunday. Which is really great. Like mm-hmm. if you That's, work, you know, yeah, I can never go to those things yeah. because you're always in the middle of a week. Yeah, working. exactly. Um, and so, like, you might notice there's a kind of a pattern here, which is I don't want to go to conferences that cost a lot of money, take a lot of time, and are really far away. I was waiting for John to start the whole conversation <laughs> with "Don't go." Yeah, I, I did a Toastmasters speech that opens with me screaming, "Don't go! Just don't go!" Uh, so what I'm trying to say is just. Don't go to these conferences that kind of break your budget or break your back if you're flying or driving. Go to something that's, like, accessible to you, whether it's time or money or, or location. And um, and there's plenty of those, and that's really going to be my strategy long term. Even if it's not so local that it's, like, let's say Southern California – I'll hop out to, like, you know, uh, a Utah, Las Vegas, Arizona area to go to something expensive, you know, not taking a lot of my work week. 
Um, and I contrast this to something like, for example, I went to a worldwide conference in New Orleans lately. It was nice. You know, it was like maybe three days of, of presentation, two days or maybe a day of, of, of open space, and that's great. But it costs north of $1,000. And that's not even including the airfare and hotel, and not to mention, you know, PTO if you have to take PTO to go. So that's kind of my take on it. But I haven't been employing this strategy very long, so I don't claim to know all of the uh, inexpensive, local, well-timed events in terms of work week. There's a few other um regional conferences coming up in mm-hmm. November. I don't have any of them off the top of my head, but they'll be in the show notes, mm-hmm. agilecoffee.com slash episode 14. Um, and, and I've seen more than one person complain that mm-hmm. they o- overlap or they both happen on the same week and, mm-hmm. and people can't go to both. It's so hard to go to both. But as John said, there's a rich um, variety of, of these local and regional conferences that are much more affordable and they pack a, a really great bang for the buck. Um, so if you can mine into that, uh, it's it's something that I would recommend too. Although I won't go so far as to say never go to a large conference. Oh, I, went no. to, yeah. I went to one um, on my company's dime, which mm-hmm. was nice. But um, but I found so much value not only in the tracks of the conferences. This was Agile 2013. Um, but also the hallway conversations and the people yeah. that you meet there and maybe pulling people aside and having kind of an ad hoc um, kind of mini conference, if you get what they call those lightning round, lightning sessions, and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. A, a couple of others, uh, by the way, that I didn't mention was in say June of this year. There was the San Diego Scrum Day. Um, it was organized by Carlton Nettleton. Really great, you know, uh, bang for the buck, as, as Vic mentions. And then before that, say in March, um, we had uh, Diana Larson, the author of Retrospectives for Teams. Uh, was was very uh, affordable as well. So also uh, there was something in Utah and something in San Francisco again, like a couple of days, well-timed, very, very affordable. Either of you guys check out conferences or think about going to any? I'd like to go to some, but uh, I've got other obligations and contracts I have to work on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost every one that I see uh, happens in the middle of the week, and I can't take <laughs> yeah. time off in the middle of the week to, to or, or seldom can to go to a conference. So I, I really actively look for, for ones that are held on weekends. Uh, Orange County Product Managers yeah. usually has product like camp. a uh, product camp, yeah. SoCal. I don't know if they did it this year. I knew they were going to like postpone it, mm-hmm. uh, and that usually takes place on a weekend, which is good. Right, and they do it it's in an free. open space format. Yeah, they didn't right. charge a penny. The thing that I love about um, technology—I mean, we're talking about conferences. Which, when you say conference, you assume multi-day, thousands of people, mm-hmm. hundreds if not thousands of people, and um, keynote speakers and whatnot. But I mean, if you go to Meetup.com or any of these other websites that help people organize around a certain theme, you can find open spaces and and the product camp um, just spring up here and there. And if Mm -hmm. you've got the means to put something together, like we're talking about putting Mm -hmm. together our own scaled Agile coffee sometime in the uh, winter or spring where we can bring people together. And, I mean, look at what we're doing here. We've got Mm -hmm. our own Agile coffee meetup. Sometimes we record for a podcast, sometimes we don't, but it takes really nothing to put it together and and Mm -hmm. have people show up that can't otherwise afford to get out of town or, or 
you know, pay the big bucks to go see uh, the key, the high priced keynote speakers. But here we are, kind of talking about relevant topics. Isn't it really like the fear factor that prevents you if you think about it? Because once you plunk down, you know, the money for the conference and the hotel and the airplane, if something happens with your team. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, okay, are you going to be the guy that like flies out in the middle of some, you know, very tenuous moment? That's gone through my mind every time I left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah me too. And, and you shouldn't let it, but it, it inevitably does, right? Right. Yeah, that usually does that. I don't. I, I don't have such a concern about that. With with me, it's just the the, the type of of consulting and contracting that I do. Mm-hmm. So I, every every day that I don't work is a day I don't get paid. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe you can use conferences as a way to kind of uh, expand your, your Rolodex, your, your client base, make networks and our connections there. Yes, that's true. Yeah, and, you know, honestly, I mean, for, for me, um, I think one of the big attractions is to interface with people who are consultants because, quite frankly, you know, they talk about cross-pollination. The greatest cross cross-pollinators are the guys that are – you know, doing consulting work with many different clients and can speak to a broader array of experience. So, yeah, I would say even if you're not a, a consultant, being able to rub elbows with them at small conferences like this is a great opportunity to learn vicariously. And one other thing that I'd like to mention is that going there as a participant is one thing, but once you start having something to say and to share with people, then going there and, and submitting a paper to speak you know, to, or a proposal so that you can speak to a topic, or or proposing a lightning round. Uh, it's kind of like the next step along the way, and then you start getting invited to come come to these, which is kind of my goal too. <laughs> is sure. to build my brand sufficiently, have something to say, and then have people like go out of their way to say, "Hey, Vic, would you mind coming?" and and I'd say, "Well, let me think about it." Yes, I'd be very happy. It's <laughs> fast, yeah. <laughs> How are we doing on this? Cool. All right. So the next topic we've got here is self-help in free software. Free software is abundant these days. When you talk yeah. about the iPhone uh, app store, um, the, the app stores for all the uh, devices in, in the Android market, mm-hmm. Windows market, um, and, and then whatever is online for your regular laptop or PC. Um, so much free software. So how do you help help yourself if they're not going to give you help. Right. And so, I mean, that's the question, right? Is So I, I want to leave this as a broader topic, but the context in which I'm thinking about it right now is, you know, if theoretically you were to start some sort of a social network, online social media per se, where really it's the number of users that creates and defines the value to any given user. Sure, network effects being... Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so... Of course, you want to make your your online software easy to use, you know, and intuitive, so that nobody needs to call somebody up and say, "Tell me how to use your software." But uh, we, I guess, you could say, come from uh, a time when call centers were there to assist customers because they were paying, and you know, the the free versions were very few and far between or short lived. So I'm wondering, what are some strategies that companies or individuals could take who are trying to offer software for free initially to people um, and allow them to help themselves if they get stuck or have questions anytime, anywhere. Has anybody ever had an experience maybe as a user of free software and wanted help but then found a way to, to resolve it 
themselves or through friends or community? I stumble upon the community. Um, I stumble upon like the YouTube videos. Um, if mm-hmm. software is is sufficiently useful, someone's mm-hmm. going to recognize that and mm-hmm. throw up a, a YouTube tutorial or some other mm-hmm. online uh, reference, a tutorial reference, and that helps them promote themselves um, as, as uh. someone who's maybe a leader in kind of that that space, getting getting trainings out. And they may have tutorials on a wide range of, of software, free and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's your first and best bet is mm-hmm. to is to get that out there because it's so easy to go to Google and mm-hmm. your favorite search engine, whatever it is, and then type in tutorial name of free software and, and get as much uh, help as you want that way. It's really interesting and I think impressive that individuals are willing to, you know, take some of their own time to say, okay, here's a tutorial on how to do this. I mean, obviously they're building a brand too, and I don't know if they ever wind up monetizing that, but it seems like that's kind of what's made, for example, Amazon. I don't normally call them a social media, but the book reviews and everything I I do look at, and that's, I think, what draws me to that site to to, to buy so many books. I think all of my books, or most of them, are are bought there. So anyways... um, Ironically, that's requiring some trust then or or some hope, I guess you could say, that you will have some core audience or user group that is so impassioned in using the software that you're creating that they're willing to pay it forward, so to speak, by writing you know these kinds of tutorials and FAQs um, on your behalf or, or with you and get users using it like you intended without having to sit by a phone all day long waiting for that phone to ring. All right, then, moving on. Our next card says Core Scrum. This looks like your handwriting, John. Core Scrum. What are you getting at here? This is mine. So I guess you could say it's kind of a discovery or a recent rediscovery of mine of of course, Scrum, it's, it, it's, a, it's a much bigger community than I thought it was. And a lot of things, you know, I, I learned about Scrum, I guess you could say formally, uh, through training that I received, you know, in the Scrum Alliance and through other, I guess you could say, variants of Scrum and Agile. And I'm only now learning, you know, what is... Scrum as it was originally um, drafted, I guess you could say. And so when you, or when I read about these incredible things like, you know, cutting uh, development time in half or some smaller fraction and expanding quality much quicker and profitability being expanded, I think that a lot of those articles now are actually written with core Scrum being the, the driver rather than Scrum as we know it, maybe, uh, depending on the, the person. And what I'm referring to is things like planning poker is not part of core Scrum. Um, user, user stories are not yeah. part of core Scrum. So, you know, what is the touchstone? Well, uh, I believe that it's the Scrum Guide. And so, you know, I'm now going to excuse me, <clears throat> endeavor to read the Scrum Guide um, and kind of reset my thinking. Um, and 
try to relearn so that I can focus on what's proven and what's the experiment. In other words, what's this is the control group, I guess you could say, core scrum, you know, and then what are the um, variants that I'm going to experiment with or maybe, you know, write off if they don't yield the results that, you know, I'm looking for. Yeah, and, and you know, when Jeff Sutherland and Ken Schwaber uh, created the framework, uh, over, it was originally designed for software development. Over the years, the, the Scrum Guide has removed the software-specific terminology to mm-hmm. get more generic so that it can be applied to other industries. And I think that they've expressed a, a vision of the future of it where there will be scrum dash like s for software scrum dash c for construction uh the framework is fairly loose and then you can hang these other things on it that are necessary for your business Mm -hmm. Uh, if it's software it's like yes you don't have to use user stories but Mm -hmm. but they've nobody's come up with a better um, way, way of, uh, of, of conveying uh, agile requirements than, than that. Uh, and yes, planning poker isn't required, but it's, it's clearly advocated by, by, I think, even Jeff Sutherland has, has talked about it. Uh, so different different businesses, even within a, a genre like software or construction or whatever it is, mm-hmm. are, are going to have slightly different practices on. And the idea was that for it to be a fairly loose framework, I mean, it's not like a it's a detailed methodology. It's only it's like less than twenty pages long, mm-hmm. and then different. Uh, industries can can will develop different practices associated with it that make it work for their industry, and then beyond that, every business that practices it has to uh, make adaptations to it to to work for their environment. The what you need to do though is to you know if if you still want to keep calling it Scrum, you have to make sure that you're sticking to the framework and that you're not veering. Yeah. off from that it's like well our team it's like we're doing scrum but our teams aren't self-organizing it's like we're doing oh. scrum. <laughs> it's like it's like okay if you're deviating like that yeah it's like okay you're not doing scrum it's like it might work for you but mm-hmm. it's not scrum reminds me of a, a topic minimally viable agile that we talked about right. way back in listeners can go back to episode three i think it was two or three and 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 find that a lot of parallels i think to that also, um, to go back to um, the book that we uh, we talked about back in episode 11, I believe it was, um, uh, Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time, uh, just coming out now by Jeff Sutherland, uh, as, as Dale mentioned, one of the co-creators of Scrum. He goes on... Um, you know, to talk about really all the core elements of Scrum, but he never once talks about user stories or planning poker in this book. So, I mean, it's a really rich book full of great examples of where everything came from. Where did the idea of the Scrum Master come from? Where did the idea of uh, Scrums themselves come from? And a lot of it goes back to um, that Harvard Business paper written in 86 by the two Japanese uh, gentlemen, uh, Takeuchi and Nonaka. The new, new product development game. Um, you know, just just a wealth of examples in the, in the book, uh, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time by Jeff Sutherland. Yeah, and um, when you mentioned that, uh, you know, by reducing it to its most uh, fundamental elements that you can generalize greater, I mean, in that instance, actually, I mean, I, I started having ideas about, you know, in a previous podcast we were talking about construction and Scrum or Agile. If you were to, say, develop personas or, you know, um, let's say, for example, as a person 
who gets around in a wheelchair, I want to be able to go to the gym on the fifth floor. Uh, that's something that might be solved through an elevator um, or you know other means. You know, maybe relocating the exercise gym to the first floor or something. But the by expressing intent in real world scenarios you can affect a better design i guess is, is is maybe one instance of how this whole approach to creating value can apply to almost any industry so anyways core scrum uh to me i mean i, I thought i knew it i didn't <laughs> I, I i don't think that i was separating you know the core from maybe the mantle if you will but that that to me this is this is a new topic of interest i love the concept of scrum S and Scrum C for construction. Yeah, that's yeah, very good. Yeah, I want to find that. All right, once again, I'm reminding you to reach out to us by using the hashtag AskAgileCoffee. If you have any questions about Core Scrum or any of the topics that we talked about, if you have experience or opinions on those topics, please use the hashtag TellAgileCoffee and let us know what you think. All right, so... Our final card of the day, uh, TDD takes twice as long, question mark. John, yeah. what are you getting at here? So this is really a question. I'm not coming with answers. I've had a conversation with an architect, a software architect that I trust very much, um, related to a comment from a team member that, you know, test-driven development really takes twice as long as not test-driven development. Mm -hmm. And so the business needs to be aware of, you know, what they're paying for. If, if test-driven development has, you know, the, the quality that you say, then great. Not then – I'm oh, sorry. Oh, no. I was going to ask, does everyone know what test-driven development is? Do we oh, need yes, a yeah. summation of it? Then? No, okay. Very aware of well, this. I think it would be good to get – Yeah, let's get okay, recap. What, what's it mean to So you? to me it means that the software programmer creates a unit test for – the functionality that they think they need to develop, make sure that it fails so they don't, you know, develop something that already exists, and then create something that satisfies the test, the unit test, that wasn't there before. Then when it's satisfied, goes and does a little bit of refactoring. It still passes, and then that's ready for user acceptance testing. Um, I'm not as familiar with it, but isn't there like a red state, a green state? Yes. So if you happen to be working in C Sharp, there's a certain plugin for, I think it's uh, TFS or Visual Studio called ReSharper, mm -hmm. and it's constantly running this unit test that you created like every three seconds or something. Okay, so red will mean it's failing, it's yeah. failing, and then when you get to green, that means... Boom, you just satisfy the test, you accomplished it. And now I can go on a refactor and, and yeah. whatever, add the next step to the functionality exactly cool so okay. it's the cost that we're thinking of now yes uh according to this this software architect that was advising me who had experience with tdd said yes you will take more time because you, you'll break your tests if you know you, you try one thing or another um and writing the test first you get better unit test coverage which is great especially if you're let's say like an investor cap uh, venture capitalists saying we need to eventually have an exit strategy where we sell our you know shares or interest in this software to some third party or IPO or whatever but 
there's going to be due diligence that happens someday on this, and we have tools now that tell us exactly how much unit tests per class or per lines of code or whatever you have. So your coverage rate, it's got to be X. And they say that because that's, in their mind, synonymous with code quality. So given that, you know, if, if the business is saying we want to pay whatever, you know, extra time up front, it's going to be required for test-driven development, then that's, you know, some justification. And if you don't have that, you know, unit test coverage, if you didn't have test-driven development, well, actually you're going to wind up paying on the back end because, you know, the maintenance, the maintenance of the code is going to basically rise. So those are the trade-offs, but I guess what I'd like to question just one more time in front of a broader audience is, does it really take twice as long to do test-driven development? At least up front. I've given this a lot of thought. I've never mm -hmm. been in on a project where we've embraced this entirely. Mm -hmm. But the idea, I believe, is that you, when you create your requirements, the requirements have to be created with the thought that we're going to test this. Yeah. And that already sets then the tone for the developer to, to create his unit tests. Mm -hmm. So I believe if it's defined well up front with the idea that this is going to be tested throughout the process thoroughly or as well as you can or as, mm -hmm. as much as it's financially feasible, then I don't think it would take twice as long. Mm. It depends on your approach. Mm -hmm. But again, you have to have the requirements anyhow or at mm -hmm. least you have to know the yeah. direction you're going in. And if you know your direction, then you should be able to write your unit tests. But if your your direction is not clear, and I think that's where this this uh, twice as long comes from, oh. then you're going to hardly ever get there. And his unit tests, of course, he's going to have to probably rewrite him. And then because it keeps breaking, why does it keep breaking? Because I've introduced this new idea, mm -hmm. uh, this new requirement, mm -hmm. and... It just keeps going and going. So if you know what you want to do up front or have a real clear idea of that story, real clear idea of your requirement, then I think you'll be fine. It will take longer mm -hmm. because it's going to be firing off. And <laughs> it's going to be telling you constantly that something's wrong, mm -hmm. if something is wrong. But on the other hand, I don't think it's going to take twice as long. Well, so that's the thing, right, is with the automated test, the, I'll call it ReSharper because I don't know of other tools that do this, and I'm sure that there are many. Um, if it's constantly giving you feedback to tell you if you're off course, then what it's really doing is preventing waste. Exactly. And that's what goes kind of unseen, and I think that's why the, this multiplier is a false multiplier. So, you know, I'm tending to think that it's a good thing. Also, I should say, if you're running Scrum and you have an invest you know, model before you pull requirements into your sprint backlog, then that's that's a get, that should be a given, and that should make this easier, like you say, to, to write your unit test. So you're not getting around that kind of test-first um, paradigm when you're doing Agile or Scrum because you, we're all about having conversations to bring clarity mm -hmm. to what will make the end user happy. If I see my unit tests are causing trouble uh, with my with our schedule, we're, we're not getting through our... Are, we're not running our tasks across a Kanban board at a, at a good rate, not burning it up, burning it down, mm -hmm. then I know that most likely our, our stories aren't clear enough. Mm -hmm. And we should have gone, should have covered that before. So then I would take that into my next sprint as something I have to watch out for a little more closely. But I've noticed that if we know what we want to do, that unit mm -hmm. tests aren't generally a big deal. Mm. Good to know. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. So you can check out the show notes for this 
and all of our episodes on agilecoffee.com. This specific episode is slash episode 14. I'd like once again to thank everyone for joining me here in the studio today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, we've got, uh, we've got Dale Ellis, who can be reached on Twitter at the Digital Dale. Larry Lawhead can be uh, connected with on email at lawhead5 at hotmail.com. Again, that's the number five. John Jorgensen on Twitter at waterscrumbon. And you can reach out to me, Vic Bonacci, at Agile Coffee on Twitter. Once again, feel free to join the conversation by using the hashtag TellAgileCoffee or AskAgileCoffee and be part of the conversation. Agile Coffee Agile Coffee